Hello, members and friends of Clifford Baptist Church. We are doing something new and different tonight in that we are going to continue on in our Bible study that we are doing weekly, Wednesday by Wednesday. Uh, we've been out of the saddle for a little bit, so it's good to be back together. I'm glad that you're joining me tonight as we continue on in a study through the Bible. For those of you who may be joining me for the first time and you've not been a part of these lessons, uh, we are taking a look at the entire flow of the account of the Bible and how it's connected together. One of the things that I think so many believers see about the Bible is that it is a collection of stories, a collection of accounts of people's lives, and there are so many people within the biblical story that we see them as individuals. But the context of the study that we're doing throughout these next weeks uh, is seeing how it's streamlined into one thread that runs throughout the Bible and how the love story of the Bible is tied together from Genesis all the way through Revelation and how the thread of God's love runs through the Bible. So that is our study. Uh, we have been through eight lessons, and we're going to uh, start on lesson number nine tonight. Uh, before I do that, I want to say a, a word of thank you. Jeremy Fulcher was here getting us ready for this streaming tonight. And also Kenneth Campbell is here taking care of sound. Chad Fleming is here taking care of our camera streaming. And I want to say a special word of uh, congratulations to Chad and Carrie Fleming. Today is their 25th wedding anniversary. So I think it's a, a great sacrifice that Chad would come out and help with this streaming service tonight. Carrie, if you're watching, I'll make you a promise. We'll go kick him out of here as soon as possible and get him home. I'll let Kenneth sweep up and take care of everything after we're done. But we're going to get Chad Fleming out of here and let him get on home. But I am glad that we are together tonight on this Wednesday night. The church is empty. I love to see that Wednesday crowd as we have gathered together. Uh, and as we're reminded on a constant basis, these days are going to pass and this pandemic is going to go through and we're going to be freed up to be the church once again uh, to gather together. Now, the church is always the church. Our mission and our ministry never changes. We're continuing to be active in ministry, uh, but our gathering together has certainly been interrupted and I'm looking forward to having our Sundays and our Wednesdays in particular getting back together in this sanctuary to be the people of God. But as we begin tonight, let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, our Lord, our God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that your word is a love story to us. The story begins with the very creation of the universe, and we know that it carries through to the culmination of the kingdom of God in Revelation and as we walk through these lessons, Lord, I pray that you will bless us, that we will learn, uh, that we will grow in understanding your word. And most importantly, Lord, I pray that we will see the flow of your love through the Bible from the beginning to the end of it, how it's tied together and how you put it together as a love story for us, reaching to us with your love, your grace, your salvation, and your eternal life. And so tonight, Father, I pray that you will bless us as we get on to lesson number nine. For those who are joining us for the very first time, we'll try to catch them up a little bit. But I thank you that we're here, Lord. I pray that you will take over the teaching, that you will speak through me. I pray that you will bless everyone who is joining us here in live streaming or those who will listen to this lesson a little farther down the road. Lord, I pray that you bless us as you 
show us your word and as you make it clearer to us that we understand it, Lord. I pray a special blessing on Carrie and Chad. Thank you for their 25th wedding anniversary today. I pray a blessing on every person who tunes in this lesson, Lord, to learn a bit about the Bible. And uh, I pray, Father, that you will open our minds and our hearts as we open it together tonight. We love you, and we're grateful to gather in your presence tonight. We're not together in a sanctuary, but we are together under your banner of love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get, begin lesson number nine tonight, here we are, April 15th, 2020. And, uh, of course, uh, we've had a lapse of time. Uh, our last lesson was March 11th, 2020, so it's been... Uh, over a month since we have been together in studying God's Word. So let me catch those of you who have been studying with me in the first eight lessons, but let me also do a little recap so we catch everyone up. If this is your first lesson, if number nine is your first lesson, uh, then I want to catch you up to where we've been and where we're going. Uh, let me also remind you of this. It would be a great idea if you just have out a little piece of paper, something that you can take some notes on. I'm going to pepper you with all kinds of information from God's Word tonight, and you'll never keep it all in your mind. So please take down a few notes, maybe some scriptural references that you can go back and reread or read devotionally. Uh, but do use this as a study tool, a devotional tool, and as God opens His Word to us. Uh, we tonight are in lesson number nine, and probably this study is going to be somewhere between 30 and 32 lessons, depending on how it breaks down. So, but right now, we're right at the getting to the one-third point of this study, and we are still in the book of Genesis. Tonight is the last night that we're in the book of Genesis. With our next lesson, we will move on into Exodus, studying the Exodus of God's people. But why do we spend almost a third of our time in one book of the Bible when we are going to look at the entire span of the Bible? Well, this is something that I have taught our group throughout the time that we have begun this study, and it is this. If you do not understand the book of Genesis, you will never understand the remainder of the Bible. We have to have a firm foundation in the beginnings of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, so we can understand how the remainder of the Bible flows. So we're spending almost a third of our time right here in the basement, right here in the foundational level of how we see God's Word built, how it's put together, how it stacks on each other in truth. And so tonight we're going to finish up the book of Genesis, but it's very foundational as I give you just a little recap, we began with God's creation of the universe and the creation of this world, and we know that the pinnacle of His creation were human beings, Adam and Eve. And of course, they lived in the perfect Garden of Eden. They lived for a time in a sinless existence. Everything was perfect. The weather was perfect. The animal population got along. Uh, they had plenty to eat. There was no conflict. There was no sin, but... There came a time in their existence where God gave them one prohibition, one thing they could not do. He denied them one thing, and if they did this one thing, they would not only fall into sin, but they would die. You see, God created Adam and Eve to live eternally in a sinless existence. But he said, if you will enter into sin and rebellion in this one thing, you will surely die. And, of course, that was eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they indeed did that. 
and they fell into sin. And all of creation fell into lostness. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, all of the rest of creation suffered because of their original sin. After that, we've studied the early accounts of the book of Genesis, the flood, uh, which Noah brought his family through and pairs of animals of the earth uh, to reestablish the human population and the animal population. We also have studied the Tower of Babel. Uh, We see another act of God's creation in that he creates a family. He creates a people who are very specifically charged to be the people of God. He begins that family with Father Abraham, and the family is called the family of Israel. He creates this family in Genesis, and it is going to run the entire account of the Bible on through the book of the Revelation. And the people of Israel, the family, the nation of Israel is integral. It is so important to understanding the flow of the Bible. So after we see the creation accounts, Genesis becomes the biography of four men. When we see the the nation of Israel begun, we see them uh, come out in the form of patriarchs in the very foundation of the nation of Israel. And we have studied the life of Abram, who was renamed Abraham, the first of the nation of Israel. Then we also have studied his son Isaac. And then the next patriarch is Isaac's son Jacob. And if you remember, Jacob was renamed by God, and his name became Israel. And then Israel, Jacob had 12 sons, but the one that we concentrate on is Jacob's son, Joseph. And that's where we are tonight. We have looked at these three patriarchs, and we're going to look at the fourth patriarch in Joseph tonight. This, in lesson number nine, is completely about the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. So we know that Joseph had a special place in his father's heart. Joseph was Jacob's or Israel's favorite son. And everybody else knew it too. And it was not always a good thing that everyone knew that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. Go to chapter 37. And we are going to start our study right there. Open your Bible to chapter 37. I want you to go to verses 3 and 4 as we open God's Word and see where it takes us tonight. So Genesis 37, look at verse 3. Now Israel, of course that's Jacob, renamed by God. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So here we have a band of brothers, and there's one favorite brother of the father. Joseph is the favorite. And of course, as you hear in these couple of verses, uh, Jacob expresses his love to Joseph by making him a coat of many colors. Uh, And that coat kind of sets Joseph apart from all of his brothers. All the brothers didn't have anything special like that from their father. And the presence of that coat and the presence of Joseph being the favorite, and it was well stated and well known that he was, the brothers became very bitter against him. They envied him. They were angry with him. And then... Joseph takes a step 
that pushes his brothers over the edge of hatred toward him. I want you to look with me the same chapter, Genesis 37. Look at verses 5 through 11. Here's a prophecy that is going to tie in very tightly with what happens in this family. So take that, hear these words. Take down that scripture, Genesis 37, verses 5 through 11. Hear these words of God's word. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. In other words, they bowed down to his sheaf. And his brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Jacob knew there was some truth in these dreams that Joseph was dreaming, and yet the brothers hated him more deeply with every word that he spoke and every dream that he recounted. Their hatred and their envy of him deepened. So in these two dreams, he tells his family that the day is going to come when all of them, mother and father and all the brothers, are going to bow down to him and they're going to obey him because in that future day, he's going to be their leader. He's going to be the boss over the family, even over the patriarch, his father, Joseph is going to be the leader of his father, mother, and brothers. Now, this was a great truth. And God had indeed given him this truth in these two dreams that eventually was going to, sh- to save this family's life. The, the importance of Joseph being the one to whom they all bowed down, was going to save their lives. They didn't understand that yet. In fact, Joseph didn't completely understand that yet, but God gave him that prophecy. At this point, the brother Joseph seems to speak in pride, and his words are not accepted well by his brothers or even by his mother and father. It brought hatred and envy from his brothers toward him. Well, sometime after these dreams took place and he recounted them to his family, Joseph meets his brothers alone. They're in a desolate place. They're taking care of Jacob's herd of sheep. So there's no one in this desert location other than the brothers who have gathered together, and Joseph meets them there. And in Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, it tells us that the brothers put their heads together and they conspire, they plan to kill him. They'd had enough. They'd had all the pride that they could take. They had all of his 
lofty stories and dreams that they could take, so they conspired to kill him. But the eldest brother, whose name was Reuben, said, this is not good. We can't kill our brother. We can't do such an ungodly act that we would take our brother's life. But rather, they come up with a plan B. They strip him of that precious coat of many colors, and they throw him in a dry pit so deep that Joseph could not climb out of it. Well, of course, that coat of many colors was the emblem of his father's love, so they strip him of that very symbolically that they're stripping him of the love of that father, taking that coat away from him. And as he is in this dry pit, the brothers gather together and say, okay, we're not going to kill him. What are we going to do with him? We don't want him around us anymore. We don't want his prideful attitude around us anymore. We don't want to hear any more of his stories or any more of his words. What are we going to do with him? I want you to turn with me, Genesis 37. Look at verse 25. And they sat down to eat bread. Isn't that interesting? They sat down over supper so they could talk about what to do with Joseph, who was over there in a deep pit. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. So this company of Ishmaelites come along riding their camels. They're in a line and they're traveling, going toward Egypt to sell their wares. And the brothers come up with the idea. These are salesmen. Let's sell our brother into slavery. Let's put him on one of those camels of the Ishmaelites. Let them haul him off to Egypt. He will be sold into slavery. We will never see him again. He will disappear into the populations of slaves of Egypt, and he will disappear for the rest of our lives. We will be rid of him if we sell him into slavery. And that is exactly what they did. Well, to hide his disappearance, they have to tell their father something. What happened to Joseph, his favorite son? So they take that coat of many colors, and they dip it in goat's blood. And they tell Jacob, Israel, the father, our brother Joseph was killed by wild animals. Here's his coat covered with his blood. It was a tremendous lie. But, of course, they didn't have the forensics that we have now, and Jacob just simply believed that the brothers, his sons, told the truth, that Joseph had lost his life to wild animals. And he is deeply, deeply moved by the loss of his son, the loss of his favored son. Now, as the story unfolds, we're getting on now to Genesis chapter 39. The Ishmaelites take Joseph on into Egypt, and they sell him as a slave. They sell him to a rich man. The rich man's name is Potiphar. And Joseph rises in Potiphar's household to be the greatest employee Potiphar ever had. He was the most trustworthy, dependable slave that Potiphar had ever had in his home. And he rises to this very trusted position of the head servant of the home. He was a hard worker, he was dependable, and so Potiphar lifted him up to be the greatest servant of his household. He was the lead servant. Now, Joseph was a very handsome young man. 
Somewhere in these days that Joseph was the head servant, the head slave of Potiphar's home, a, prob a problem arises for him. Potiphar's wife has her eye on him, and she has noticed how handsome he is. And so she comes to him with a sexual proposition to lie with her. And Joseph, being the upright, dependable, godly young man that he is, he flees that temptation. He never even comes close to falling into that temptation. He never walks very close to the side of that bank where he would slide into that temptation. He immediately flees. That's exactly what the Bible tells us to do in the New Testament. We are to flee temptation. Don't play with it. Don't think about it. Don't toy with it. Don't wonder what would happen if you fall into it. Just flee it. And that is exactly what Joseph did. But Potiphar's wife turns on him in scorn because he had rejected her. She accuses Joseph of attempted rape. You can look at this story in Genesis chapter 39 from verses 14 forward. Read that devotionally sometime as how she accuses him and what happens to him because of this accusation. I can put it into a, a condensed form here tonight, but basically the Bible says as a result of Potiphar's wife's accusation, which was believed he was a rich and respected man, so his wife was very respected as well, and she was believed... Joseph was not, although he may have cried foul and he may have said, I fled, I didn't ever touch her. She was the one who was believed by the legal system. And so Joseph was thrown into prison. He languishes there in prison. It is a very unpleasant place. But in his time there, he interprets some dreams for prisoners in that same jail. And because he was successful and because he told the truth and because these men realized that this is a godly man, this man is filled with the Spirit of God to be able to interpret our dreams in such an accurate way. The news gets to Pharaoh, the president, the leader of Egypt, that this young man can interpret dreams, that he has this gift of interpretation and so in Genesis chapter 41, verses 25 through 36, Joseph interprets two dreams that the great king Pharaoh had uh, about Egypt and something that was going to happen. Now, the dreams were shrouded enough that Pharaoh didn't understand what he was dreaming. He had a vivid understanding of what he was dreaming, but he did not understand at all the meaning of what he was dreaming. And the dreams were so disturbing that he absolutely wanted them to be interpreted. And so he brings Joseph in, this young man who's interpreting dreams in prison. He comes into Pharaoh to interpret these dreams. And here's the interpretation. He tells Pharaoh, these dreams are telling you that Egypt is going to go through seven years of great plenty. Your crops are going to be bumper crops. Seven years. Egypt is going to have an amazing amount of food produced. However, the following seven years are going to be a devastating famine. Were it not for the seven years of plenty, most of Egypt would starve in the seven years of famine. Well, Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph 
Joseph is teaching him, you need to store up from the years of plenty so that you will have food in the years of famine. And Pharaoh is amazed by the wisdom of this young man, his interpretation of his dreams, and also the plan he comes up with in order to make sure that Egypt comes through this famine of seven years. What happens? Pharaoh is so enamored with Joseph that he promotes him to be the vice president of Egypt. He is second in control, second in command, only under Pharaoh himself. His job? Well, his job description is, you, Joseph, head up this program of stockpiling food for those first seven years that we are so productive and the crops are overflowing. You stockpile those, that food, that grain, into barns, and you get us ready to face the famine of the seven years that are going to come afterward. And Joseph does that. And he makes sure that the program runs smoothly and the food is stockpiled well for the lean years. By God's grace, so much food was produced in that seven-year period that not only did Joseph stockpile enough to feed all of Egypt, but they had enough to sell to other countries and to other people bordering uh, Egypt. So they had enough food that they could help other nations, and they were selling it. So it helped others. It also increased the bottom line of their profits. It was a great plan. Well, guess who comes to Joseph for help? His own family. They hear the news that Egypt has grain to sell, and so they come to purchase grain that they too might live through this famine. Turn with me to Genesis 42 and go to verses 6 through 8. Genesis 42. Verses 6 through 8. Listen to these words. And Joseph was the governor over the land. And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. So they'd been separated now for many years. Years had passed since they sold him to the Ishmaelites back there when they were taking care of their father's sheep. They did not recognize him. They did not know who he was. So all these brothers show up except one. There's one brother that does not come with these group of brothers to buy food. It was the baby. It was the youngest brother of the family. His name was Benjamin. And in Genesis chapter 42, verse 20, uh, Joseph tells his brothers, I want you to go get Benjamin, I want you to bring him, your youngest brother, I want him to come to me. Now, they still don't know that this is Joseph, their brother. It had been years since they had seen him. And, of course, he had disappeared into the slave trade as far as they knew. He had aged. His appearance was different. Uh, and I want you to remember that these guys coming out of Canaan were still shepherds. They were still scruffy. They still had their beards. They probably still smelled of the sheep, and their clothing wasn't fancy. But Joseph had grown up 
in an Egyptian home, in an Egyptian culture, and he was very different from them in this day, in that Egyptians shaved. So he was clean-shaven. Not only did they shave their face, they shaved their head. Their head may have looked a little bit like Mike Bell's head, but they were very, he was very clean-shaven. Uh, also, he was wearing Egyptian clothing, very different from the robes that they wore in Canaan. Well, why did Joseph want to see Benjamin? Why was it so important, before he revealed himself to this family, why was it important for him to see the youngest brother? There's a very touching reason for that. Only he and Benjamin shared the same mother. All of the boys, all of the brethren shared the same father, Jacob, Israel. But there were four mothers of these 12 men. Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Rachel. And so this was the only full brother that Joseph had. And he was the youngest one of all the brothers, and he wanted to meet his full-blood brother. So the brothers go home, and they tell their father Jacob that this Egyptian wants to see Benjamin. And of course... Jacob, being a father, and I think any of us who are parents would understand this, he's very reluctant to allow his baby boy to go into Egypt to meet this Egyptian ruler. For some reason, wants to meet him. Perhaps he's going to keep him. Perhaps he's going to take him as his own, make him, make him a slave in his household. There's no understanding as to why this Egyptian leader wants to see Benjamin. So Jacob is reluctant to send his son to Egypt to see this Egyptian leader. But this man is in charge of their survival. This Egyptian leader is going to sell them food. And so Jacob realizes that he needs to acquiesce to this request and send his son Benjamin on to meet the Egyptian leader, this strange man who wants to see him. Well, the whole group of brothers return, going back to Egypt, back to buy grain. What does Joseph ask them? Turn with me to Genesis 43. Look at verses 27 and 28. Genesis 43, go to verse 27. As they get in front of this Egyptian leader, he asks this question. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. They still don't know this is Joseph. But as they, as they are telling Joseph that their father is still alive, they don't understand that they're telling Joseph that his father, Jacob, is still alive. He wanted to know that. And then Benjamin comes. They bring the youngest brother to this Egyptian leader. And Joseph, for the first time in his life, sees his only full-blood brother in the world. And I love what Scripture says here. You know, Scripture is so raw, it's so wonderful, in that it gives us a lot of information about people, both good and bad. But I love what it says here about Joseph's reaction. None of the brothers know who he is. Benjamin has no idea who he is. 
but his reaction when he sees his only full brother. He becomes so emotional that he has to leave the room and get off by himself so he can cry, so he can let out the emotion of seeing his only full brother in the world. While this is just such an amazing account of God, it's so human. When you think about the expanse of Joseph's life, there's hatred, there's envy, there's death. There are those who want to kill him, those who sell him into slavery. But then there's also love. There's this raw emotion of Joseph seeing his family and down deep in his heart longing to be reunited with them again, especially with this brother that he had just met. He was longing for his family, even though he had been so mistreated, and though he had spent his life in Egypt and had been in jail and had been in slavery, had risen to power, he still loved his family. Well, really to this point, the brothers do not know why that this Egyptian ruler is not treating them like common people. You know, most people who come to Egypt outside of the country to buy food are treated in, in such a way that you gather your grain, put it in your wagons, pay us the money, get out of here, go on back to where you came from. But this Egyptian leader kept reaching out to these brothers, and they didn't understand why. They were treated better than most of the people who came into the country, finally, finally. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. It is one of the most touching chapters of the Bible. We cannot read it in its entirety tonight, but I want you to write this reference down, Genesis chapter 45. And I want you to use that chapter devotionally sometime tonight or sometime this week. Read through Joseph's reunion with the brothers. It's so sweet, it is so amazing in its recount of how Joseph is reunited with his family. It's an amazing chapter on an amazing reunion and, most importantly, an amazing forgiveness. Joseph forgave his brothers. He could have very easily turned against his family, never wanted to speak to them again. When they came into Egypt to buy grain, he could have done anything from reject them to kill them or have them killed by the soldiers of Egypt. And yet, rather than live with this negativity in his mind and his heart and this hatred that would eat him up, he forgave them. Uncommonly beautiful how Joseph forgave his family. But he reveals himself to them. And Joseph, by Pharaoh's invitation, tells his entire family, go back to Canaan, pack up all your belongings, pack up all the animals, pack up the family, and bring them here because Pharaoh and I invite you to come live in Egypt. You will live in a way that you've never lived before. You're going to live under the reign of the royalty of the house of Pharaoh. You're going to live under the royalty of Joseph. Your lives are going to be very different. We want you to come to Egypt and to live here. That's an amazing thing. Joseph, by Pharaoh's invitation, tells the family to come as they live in privilege in Egypt. And 
Old Jacob heard this invitation. The father heard the invitation. And they, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that a son, Joseph, was still alive after all of these years. Joseph is alive. He had always thought he was dead. Perhaps somewhere on the premises, there still hung that old bloody coat of many colors that he thought belonged to his son, killed by animals. But Joseph is alive. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 45, and we're going to go to verse 26. Genesis 45, verse 26. In fact, let's back up to verse 25. So Genesis 45, verse 25. And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. Let me tell you, in Hebrew, when it says Jacob's heart fainted, it kind of meant that he, he went into a catatonic state. He couldn't talk. He couldn't move. He was so shocked. He was just straight on. He couldn't say a thing. He was so amazed by this news. Of course, remember that he's a very old man. He is in stunned silence that Joseph is still alive. And furthermore, that he's a governor, a ruler in Egypt. He's not a slave. He's a ruler. He, he couldn't believe it. He said he believed them not. Verse 27, And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel, or Jacob, said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. What a beautiful passage of Scripture and God assures Father Israel or Jacob that he's doing the right thing to move on to Egypt, to get out of Canaan and move to Egypt. Look with me to chapter 46, verses 2 to 4. So go to Genesis 46, look at verse 2. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not. To go down into Egypt, for I will make there thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. Final picture. God says, you will live in Egypt so long, Jacob, that Joseph will reach forth. And close your eyes in death. He will put your, his hand over your face and close your eyes in death. You will live there until you die. Now, as this story concludes, I, I remind you that it has various parts. The brothers hating Joseph. Their plan to kill him, which ultimately turns to a plan to sell him, never to see him again as he goes into Egypt and into slavery. And he is dragged into Egypt. He is sold. He is wrongly accused of adultery. He is innocently cast in jail. But then he rises to power in Egypt as the second in command. And then he is reintroduced to the family who had rejected him and sent him away and sold him into slavery. And these brothers, they were still scared of him. They, 
they thought perhaps after Jacob dies, after our father dies, he's going to do a, an about and take revenge on us. After our dad is out of the picture, he's going to have us killed. He's going to execute revenge on us one of these days. The brothers were fearful. They feared that he could have them killed with the, just the snap of his finger as second in command in Egypt. But here's the key statement that Joseph makes. If you underline a verse tonight, this is the verse. Turn with me to the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. And here's the way Joseph settles how his brothers feel. Genesis 50, look at verse 20. This is a great, great verse. A verse that you need to highlight in your Bible. Here's what Joseph said. But as for you, speaking to his family, speaking especially to his brothers, but as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. And so Joseph has the wisdom to look backward, and even though it came out of the hatred of his brothers, God put him in a place that not only did he save his own family, but he saved all of Egypt, and he saved people in the surrounding countries of Egypt with this plan that came through the dreams that he had. So Joseph had the wisdom to say, God took a bad thing, and he made it good. God took lemonade, uh, rather lemons, and made lemonade. God took something that was evil and turned it around not just to my good, but for the good of many people, perhaps thousands upon thousands of people. God took evil and made it good. I love those verses because it culminates by Joseph assuring his brothers, I truly forgive you. I forgive you of everything that you think I might turn against you. I truly love you. I forgive you. I love you. And I always will. Well, as I get close to the end of this study tonight, there are a few important points that come through this study that I want you to write down. You'll never remember them all, so just write down these few points. There are six of them. And what I'm going to tell you right now is that Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. What we see in this Old Testament story, account of Joseph's life is so much parallel to the life of Jesus Christ that we will see when the New Testament opens. So here we are still in the first book of Genesis, but we see a life that parallels the life of Jesus when the New Testament opens. Six very important points. There are more, but these stand out above them all, I think. Here's point number one. Joseph was the favorite son of his father. Jesus was the only begotten son of his father. Point number two. There is no record of any sin recorded in Joseph's life. In all of this account of his life, there is not one word of Joseph falling into sin. Jesus never fell into sin. The third point. Joseph is mistreated by his family. We know that Jesus' family mistreated him as well. The Jews mistreated him as well. It, it says in the first few verses of the Gospel of John that, that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. 
His own family rejected him. And in fact, at the end of his earthly life, right prior to the cross, it was his own family that rejected him so much that they themselves said, crucify him, crucify him. Joseph's family rejected him. Jesus' family rejected him. And in fact, the Jews today, to this very day, have yet to come fully to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Point number four, Joseph rose to great power. Jesus has great power. He didn't rise to great power from the very beginning of the moment that we can understand as eternity backward. Jesus was always the God of power. He was powerful but he was powerful here as he lived his life on this earth. He was powerful in that he could heal the sick. He could calm the storm. He could forgive the sinner. He could even raise the dead. But his greatest power was expressed when he went to the cross and rose from the grave that we might have forgiveness in life. Joseph and Jesus, men of great power. Point number five, in that position of power... Joseph's brothers did not recognize him, and to this day, there are so many people, including Jesus' family, who do not recognize him. And then point number six, Joseph has an amazing heart of forgiveness. What we see happening as, as Genesis closes in chapter 50 is Joseph completely forgiving and exonerating his family of any ill will or any hard feelings that he ever had. Jesus Christ can forgive the deepest sin and the deepest sinner. So Joseph and Jesus' lives are very parallel. And I want you to understand that's part of the thread. We see that running through the Bible. What a, what a great foundation that Genesis lays for us as we see the patriarchs' lives. And tonight as we see in lesson number nine, Joseph's life and how it shows us a thread that will run all the way into the New Testament. It's not a disconnected story. It's a story that relates the power of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It's part of the thread that we see in the Bible. Now, before we close tonight, Joseph was 39 years old when he came to be reconciled with his brothers, when he forgave his brothers, and everybody from Canaan moved to Egypt. And the Scripture says that Joseph lived to be 110 years old. So... The family of Jacob or Israel lived in peace in the last 70 years of Joseph's life in Egypt. The family was together for 70 years, seven decades. That family lived in peace together. But as Joseph dies, he makes one final request. Look with me, Genesis 50, verses 24 through 26. And here we are at the very last words of Genesis And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you, and will bring you out of this land into the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being a hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And there is where the book of Genesis ends. It's interesting that it tells us in the book that Joseph 
was embalmed by Egyptian custom. Embalming was not used in the nation of Israel. But embalming preserved the body so that Joseph was not going to be buried. He was going to be put aside in a special place. His coffin would reside there until the family of Joseph, the Israelites, would leave the land of Egypt. They would take his bones with them. So Joseph gives us a very multifaceted picture of the Christ, Jesus, who carries through as the thread of the Bible. Now, the next lesson, we're going to come to a very important turning point in the biblical account of the nation of Israel, the family of God. Remember, again, they've lived for 70 years in in the nation of Egypt, and they are royalty. They're living under the banner of Joseph and the banner of Pharaoh, and they were living very privileged lives in Egypt. But a turn comes, and they will enter into slavery And we'll see that happen as the book of Exodus opens. That will be lesson number 10 as we look as Israel Israel will change from royalty to slavery and what happens to them then. A good study tonight. Thank you for joining me in it. My prayer is that the Lord has taught you and me a little something more about His Word and that maybe for you and me, He's made a connection of how the Bible holds hands from the very beginnings of Genesis to the very end of Revelation, the thread that runs through of God's love, God's grace, and God's forgiveness. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, thank You for tonight, Lord. Thank You for this lesson about Joseph's life. Father, I pray that you will bless us as we take our next step next week into the book of Exodus. But Lord, thank you that we have studied intensely the book of Genesis. We have studied the foundation of the Bible. In order to understand the rest of the Bible, we have to understand what Genesis says. But I thank you, Father, for my students, for our class as we have met together tonight, for those who will pick up this study maybe a little bit later after we're done tonight. But, Lord, I pray that you bless us. I pray that we will always be in your favor, that we will always walk as a witness of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for Clifford Baptist Church. I thank you for the Savior we serve, Lord. And I pray that as we study through your Word of God, that you further impress in our minds that we are to always walk in this Word. We're not to turn to the right or to the left, but this Word is to be our roadmap, our guidebook of life and ministry and love. Bless us, Lord, as we study it. Bless us as we follow it. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And good night.